Folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. There's always one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, today is Monday, August the 1st, 2022. And this is episode 3135 of the Survival Podcast. And I literally had to look at my notes. I usually don't have to look at my notes for the show uh, uh, number, right? Because... Well, you just do the notes up and you just, okay, it's going to be this one. Today, I, I, every time I tried to type 3155, uh, I just said it. Every time I tried to type 3135, for some reason I typed 3155. I can only guess because I officially turned 50 years old this week. Which day? If you don't know, eh, try to figure it out. It's not that hard. It's not a big secret. But because it is my birthday, I want to remind you guys, we do have the troll sale going on. Well over 50 people have either purchased a Troll membership, which is actually just a discounted uh, MSB membership for themselves or their brother or their imaginary friend or their dog just to celebrate my birthday and torturing the Trolls. We have so many Trolls that show up in our live feeds that I think this is a great way to handle Trolls. Uh, of course, John Willis taught me this, but I'll tell you where I saw this done at a master's level. At a master's level. Many, many years ago, I was speaking in California, and there was a place there. They served nothing but meat. If it was meat, they had it. If it was vegetarian, they didn't. They, there wasn't even a side dish. It was called, yes, you guessed it, S&M Sausage and Meat. They even every day put out a safe word, and it would go on a certain radio station. If you knew the safe word, you got extra bacon when you got there. But there was another way you could get extra bacon. Obviously, PETA didn't like this. They thought this was a bad thing. So they made a thing where if you are there and you're having your meal of wonderful carnivore delights and PETA protests, they gave every single person in the place free bacon. And PETA went away. That is monetizing trolls. And that was, man, that was a long time. That's like 2014. I remember that. And that was good bacon. We didn't get PETA to come, but we did listen to the radio station on the way in. And we... Happen to get the safe word. <laughs> All right. So monetize those trolls, folks. Help me do this. You have the rest of this week through Sunday to join the MSB if you're not already a member. Or, you know, buy one for your dog or something like that. Just cancel the auto renewal. Your dog doesn't need to be on auto renewal. Uh, and you just email me and I'll take care of it after the fact. It's been surprising how many people have done that. It's great. Uh, the other way, of course, is you can boostergram me on uh, Fountain and just put troll in your boostergram and maybe I'll read it on the air. I'll be reading some of those on the air uh, when we get to the live feed portion of this video. I can't read them all. Uh, all of you guys are so great, but I'm reading, you know, the, the first, let's say, 10 on the last episode is what I'm going to be doing with that. But before we get into today's topic, which, well, what the hell are you talking about today, Jack? We're talking about cooking today. There's a picture of me. Some dude already said, like, there's nice you use pictures before you put your weight back on for your promotions on, on social media. And I'm like, okay, cool. Thanks for the compliment, dude. That picture was taken this morning. Anyway, so um, we're going to talk about cooking with technique as a life skill today. And I've always said that life skills are prepper skills because you're preparing to live life and to continue to live life in a great way. So we'll talk more about the why of cooking when we get into the live feed portion of this episode. But yeah, we're going to be talking about cooking with technique. And really the title of the whole thing is a little clunky today, but cooking with technique over recipe as a life skill. And I'm going to talk about 
in the beginning with this how there's a direct connection between people that can cook well and cook for themselves and health. Even if you are not keto, carnivore, paleo, whatever. I don't care. Even if you're cooking the things that are more like you're using rice and beans. In your, I don't care. People that cook for themselves generally are healthier than people that use things out of bags and boxes in restaurants. Just are. All right, so... Before we do that, let's hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor today, number one today, is JM Bullion. I love JM Bullion. They are a great sponsor. They have been with us now eight years. They're the company that when I first took them on, they actually did have a few hiccups with their shipping problems. And every time I got in touch with their, their president, Michael, he said, thank you for helping me fix this. And I have been working with that company now. Like I said, it's eight or nine years that we've been working with JM Bullion. All the silver and gold at equal or better pricing than your big houses like Lear Capital and Monex and Atmex. Okay? So better pricing, same silver, free shipping, and MSB members get a discount. And that alone might be why you want to take part in the troll sale if you're not already a member. Next up today, Live Free Academy. Whoa, wait, what's that? We have a new sponsor? Yes, we do. I have been making some changes on the sponsor lineup. Nobody did anything wrong, but I want to give other people a chance. And my good friend John Bush has been asking to be a show sponsor for a long time. He's sponsoring us today with Live Free Academy. But you don't want to just go to Live Free Academy. You want to go to the website. You want to use the link in our sponsor of the day today or John's banner on the top of the website. I've got them all the way at the top of the stack, and this is why. If you get over to Live Free Academy today, I and all the other great speakers that were at the Exit and Build conference in the spring, you can get access to the videos of the entire conference for four days for free, and then choose if you want a paid option after that. That's right. Four days, you get to view all of the videos that were shot. Myself, Joel Salton, Paul Wheaton, Marjorie Wildcraft, uh, just tons of really great people there. Nicole Sauce, how can I leave her out? Yeah, she did a fantastic presentation. It really is an amazing value. I love what John's doing with Live Free Academy. So, like I said, he's been wanting to come on board officially as a sponsor. I'm excited to bring him on. This is one of those ones where you really do want to use one of the links. And there will be a link in the Daily Mail as well today. And I will try to get out a blog post this week welcoming him officially, but I wanted to get it done today. With that, let's, uh, let's dive on into this and drop on into the live feed. And we're going to talk about cooking as a life skill, and remember, all life skills are indeed prepper skills. And we are live. Welcome to episode 3135 of the Survival Podcast. I said in the uh, the bumper that goes on the audio, I've been uh, I've had to type that number several times today. Every time I've typed it, I've typed 3155. I guess because I got 50 on my mind because I officially turned 50 this week. Anyway, so I'm officially old now. Uh, anyway, today what are we going to talk about? We're going to talk about cooking as a skill over cooking as, a, as something like following a recipe. In fact, as a life skill based on cooking techniques, I'm going to give you my core cooking gear. And I want to talk a little bit about why I chose this topic for today. And it's, 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 it's a multifold thing. Number one, if it is a life skill, something that makes your life better, to me it is a prepper skill. Because we talk about living a better life, if times get tough or even if they don't. So every skill that we add to our life that is relevant to our world and makes our life better is by its very nature a life design skill. And so it's a prepper skill. Now, I don't know anything that people do every day consistently more than eat, except maybe get rid of what we ate the day before. That's about, And breathe oxygen. 
right? We eat and we drink and we break bread in some way with our contemporaries, our friends, our family every single day. So it's something that drastically impacts our life. More, though, is health. And I am keto carnivore. Everything you hear me talk about will tend toward that. Um, but I don't care. If you eat potatoes and rice and bread and whatever, you will be so much better off sourcing your own ingredients, using ingredients like if the ingredient that you're reading on a label has more syllables than your name, it's probably a bad idea for you to consume it. So no matter what you're doing, I think you'll be better off. And before I continue, let me remind you guys, you'll see it right down there in the video for those watching the video version. I will never contact you for any personal information or private chat, et cetera, in video comments or messenger services on things like Instagram, et cetera, like that. There are tons of people out there impersonating me, trying to scam people. I do not have backup accounts. I don't. That's not a thing. Anybody that contacts you, follows you, whatever, and pretends to be me, assume it's not me. If it is me, I won't be upset. If you want to contact me for any kind of back-channel communications, email is the way to go. It has been for 14 years, and it will never change. I do not believe in using those services because places like YouTube, Facebook, etc., they don't care about you. They don't care about you. They don't effing care about you. And because of that, they do not provide a way for people like me to be verified. And they don't provide a way to stop people like that from preying on you. So never, ever trust it, ever. Anyway, so... Back to the uh, the health thoughts. I've noticed something about the most unhealthy people in our society. The people that are the most overweight, the people that have the most chronic health conditions. And here's the commonalities. They eat a lot of food from restaurants. And I don't mean really nice restaurants where they have a chef in the back using the techniques I'm going to give you today. Fast food and low-end consumer grade, think chilies, think... Uh, I don't even know because I don't go anymore. Like, think Fridays. Uh, I'm trying to think of one other place now, and it won't come to me, but Applebee's, right? Like, they go to places like that all the time or down from there. Like, going out for really good food is like Chick-fil-A, which I'm not even picking on Chick-fil-A. Like, if you're going to eat fast food, it's probably that and maybe, like, uh, Taco Cabana is about as good as you're going to do, right? Or uh, Chipotle, right? So they, they do that a lot. They also, when they do cook food at home, It comes out in a bag or a box, and it comes with instructions like microwave on high for three minutes or set oven to 350, throw on pan, and leave in there until it's golden brown, right? Um, they use a microwave more than a stove or a grill. People, The most unhealthy people I know, they use a microwave more than their stove, even if you're cooking something in the store. They have very poor or even no real cooking skills. It's not that they don't cook because they choose not to. It's they don't cook because they really don't know how. And when they do cook, they follow a recipe, and they're unhappy with what they end up with. And they're like, it's not worth it. I can buy this thing in a box. It costs less money this way, and I know what I'm going to get even though it's crap. Um, they usually have poor or even no knife skills. And when I say knife skills, I'm not talking about shiving somebody who needs shiving. I'm talking about properly slicing an onion or taking a bird apart. They don't have that. So that's one of those skills we're going to talk about today. Um, if they cook anything that's not pre-prepared, it's not in a bag, you don't throw it in a pan, turn it on and saute it until it's done or whatever. All right? And they don't, you don't even know what saute means. It just says that, so that's what you think you're doing. Um, they need a recipe. They need a paint-by-numbers recipe. This is really bad. There's nothing wrong with recipes in and of themselves, and especially when you get into baking and stuff like that that I don't do a lot of. 
you're in the world of chemistry when you're trying to make bread rise to a certain level or something like that. And I, I, I understand that. If you need a recipe to make a steak, you don't know how to cook a steak. Don't worry, we're going to fix that today. And they spend more money to eat bad food than good cooks spend to eat good food. It seems cheaper until you realize that when you cook at home, you usually end up with this thing called leftovers. So when you repurpose that, you end up far and away in a better place. So we're going to talk about my core kitchen gear today, and then we're going to go through five techniques and how to master them. And if you do this alone, you'll be able to cook. Because what I did today is I said, I'm not going to get into fancy shit. I'm not going to talk about food processors or things that hang chicken so that you get air frying effects on your grill or smokers or anything. I'm going to talk about the gear I use in my kitchen multiple times a week, if not every day, and the techniques that I use multiple times a week, if not every day. To cook when I'm not doing anything fancy, I'm just cooking something. Because if you learn that, then everything else gets easier. Before I do that, though, I did want to recognize some of the boostograms that came in on Fountain last week, and I can't do them all. I'm sorry, guys. I really am. I really appreciate it. If you boost me at one sat, I still appreciate you. But what I'm going to start doing is reading about the top ten from the prior episode. So last week, uh, doc, Dr. Ken Berry interviewed me about food security. Here's some of the uh, boostograms came in. Moose Steak said 5,000 sats. This was an epic week of TSP. Thanks for the knowledge and encouragement. I feel like that, too, man. It was an epic week last week. Thank you. Bit, I guess that's how you say his handle. Excellent episode, Jack. 5,000 sats. Thank you for the very generous boost. Uh, Hobbit Nuts, 3,500 sats. How many boosts until I get my Jackistan citizenship? I replied to that one. Until Bitcoin hits 1 million bucks, Jackistan remains a dream. 3,000 sats from Zach, 324. Good information. I'm doing what I can. I've planted three varieties of apples that do well here in Wyoming. Hope to get more space when I can move into the country and be more self-sufficient. Thanks for all you do. I listen to your podcast daily on my commute and various mines and drilling sites around the state. Let me tell you something, guys, with your small holdings. You can grow more than a family can use on a, on a third of an acre. You really can. Uh, I recommend those of you on small places, Google or, or uh, go to uh, YouTube and search for permaculture in the micro spaces, Jeff Lawton. You'll probably find a video I did with that in it. JCR McFadden, 608 sats, 500 sats from user 1518. Thank you from Carlos in Hot Springs. User 4729, 500 sats, no boost to gram. User 3886 from Orfer. Thanks, Jack. It's these new adaptive topics to keep your podcast fresh and interesting. I have an apartment patio where I grow culinary and medicinal herbs. I'll take the challenge to grow more greens for my table. Thanks again. Again, 500 sats. Hermit Design, 500 sats. Uh, Duvrock, Dan, because I know who this guy is. I can't say his freaking thing. He said, I never knew quail could be so easy and has a link to something on Fountain. And 300 sats from Beardy Builds. Hey, Jack, happy birthday in the next few days. It was my 30th birthday on the 27th of July. And the best present I could get myself was to join the member support brigade. Absolutely love the work you're doing. All the best. Happy birthday again. Thanks from Australia. Ned, thank you. And I'll cut it there. But if you boosted me and I didn't mention you, I'm sorry. I can't do the whole show just boosting. So if you want to boost me, get on fountain.fm. Earn free sats while you listen to podcasts. It sounds the same there, but you get better results. So let's dig into this. I want to start off, and we'll see how this is going to go. I am going to do some screen sharing here. And we'll see how that works. Sometimes it gets glitchy. And if it does, nothing I'm going to show you today is that important. So I just want to be able to show you what I can of some of the stuff we're going to talk about. My core kitchen gear, and when I say this, I mean, if, if I talk about it today, 
I'm going to put my hands on it probably three, four times or more this week. So there's a lot of crap I have in my kitchen I really love. I love my sous vide cooker. Sometimes I use it three times in a week. Sometimes I don't use it for three or four weeks. I love my food processors, both the mini one and the big one. But, again, sometimes I use it three or four times in a, in a couple of weeks. And then sometimes I go a month without pulling it out. So this is stuff I use all the time, and it's why it's here. You see that picture of old Jack there on the front? Right, that was that the pictures from this morning, and uh, I just wanted a good thumbnail for it. You see what's in my hand? A great big knife. And that's kind of where I begin my core gear is with knives. And you, I'm a knife snob, and I like knives, and I have a lot of knives. You see a bunch of knives on the wall behind me, and most of them are, like, down for being cleaned and sharpened, actually, this morning. So you don't need everything that I have, and you don't even need everything I'm going to recommend. One thing you do want, and that's what's in that picture, is, is, a, is a, either a good chef's knife or a Santuco knife. Uh, and I like both for different reasons. But I just wanted to show you kind of like if you want to go upper end, the brand that I would recommend, unless you're going to go custom or something like that. So Shun Cutlery's Premier Chef's Knife, that's what's up on the screen. Uh, I love these knives. They're beautiful. I own all three uh, of the knives that I have linked there for you. Uh, I love kind of the... Uh, the Damascus treatment, but it's actually a laminate steel, but you don't need this. You don't need this, and you can go to the uh, show notes, and you can look up the other two knives, but I like having um, a chef's knife to do the majority of the workhorse stuff for chopping and, and slicing and things like that. There are times when I feel like I get better control with a Santuco knife, which is a, more of an Asian profile, and uh, why don't we go ahead and bring that one up just so you can see what I'm talking about of the difference in the shape of the blade. But the real reason I have this is, well, somebody might have the chef knife. Somebody might have the Santuku. Um, it does have a flatter blade profile. So for some chopping, I prefer, I would rather chop, un chop onions than that with a Santuku than I would with a chef's knife, but I could do it with either. But that means if somebody has the other knife, I still have a great all around dual purpose knife. So I, if you don't have the money and you want to go higher end, I would get one or the other, and you can always add the other one later. One thing I will always want to have is a good small frame paring knife. This is the one that I have from uh, from Shun. Again, it's you know it's 135 bucks for a relatively small knife, but it's top end. But I wanted to give you guys a reality check here. With you don't have to have super expensive knives. This is an Amazon uh, basic set, their Amazon premium cutlery set. This entire set is 67 bucks, And you can see last purchase, I bought this in 2019. I bought it for my nephew, who was in law school at the time, and he was really learning to cook, and I found out all his knives were garbage. These are very well made. About the only thing in, in the set that when I looked at it, I didn't really love was the shears. The kitchen shears, not so great. But it'll give you... You know, all the basic blade profiles that you really need, and it gives you a great, decent set of steak knives. So I am a kind of person, I don't want to be in a, in a realm where I don't have good quality knives because it is the tool you're going to reach for. It. You're going to trim excess off of a, of a chicken. If you've got excess fat on the outside, you want to trim it before you pound it out and you cook a breast. It's You're going to reach for it to chop that garlic up. What I really insist on is making sure that you keep your knife sharp. So I recommend you have a good sharpening tool. I have one I recommend in those notes. I'm not going to bring it up on the screen. You can go look it up for yourself. And learn to use a sharpening steel. 
And a sharpening steel is really not a sharpening steel. It's a stay sharp steel. So we don't ever let the blade get dull, and then all we need is a steel. If the blade gets dull, we need to use a true sharpener, and I have different sharpeners on the website you can look up. But the Ken Onion uh, belt sharpener is about 100 bucks, and it's probably the best thing for a home person uh, to do their own knives with if you take your time and learn to use it, or you're putting it on a stone or a diamond steel or something like that. A regular butcher steel, all we're doing is we're keeping that blade sharp, and if that means whenever you use the knife, if you learn to use a steel and you run it on the steel, either away from you or towards you, depending on what you're comfortable with, and away from you is probably better, then you'll keep that knife sharp and it will seldom actually need to truly be sharpened. Or at least you'll lengthen your time in between. Because all you're really doing is truing up the edge. And we're going to take good care of the edge by using proper technique and proper tools. Next up, um, you got to cook, right? So now you need a pan. Lodge, carbon steel, 12-inch pan. I have a whole write-up on them, but if you take good care of them, they come pretty well seasoned to begin with so things don't stick. Don't try to do anything fancy with them. People have, like, tried to mill them. They take brushes, like, uh, on the end, like metal brushes on the end of a drill and try to, to mill them down smooth. Leave it alone. Leave it alone. Cook with it. Take good care of it. And that means whenever you're done cooking, don't let it sit there. You get done cooking hit it with some cold water, basically you're doing a, a deglaze as a clean, get it cleaned off, get yourself a ringer, I have a, a link to that, it's just a little piece of chain mail, and just throw some salt in the pan and scrub out the pan almost immediately. Wipe the pan out with a paper towel, that would be your minimum you do at the end, go sit down, have your meal, come back, make sure it's cleaned out well, don't worry, no soap, no detergents, it's a pan. You're going to heat it up. Nothing bad's going to happen to your food because it got contaminated with some kind of bacteria when you're going to put it on the stove and heat it up. Okay? Give it a light wipe, light wiping with oil then. Heat it back up till that oil just begins to smoke. Shut it off, set it on the back, and you're going to be good. I'll tell you something else about these carbon steel pans. If you go put them in the oven, this does not apply. If you cook a long time, this doesn't apply. Everybody's afraid of the handle. Please be careful. But in general, when I'm doing sautéing, cooking, even cooking steaks, the end of that handle never gets too hot for me to handle. Now, you be careful with that, but I also do love the, the thought that we take a big old hunk of meat, depending on what we're cooking. We can sear both sides of it, have the oven set to temperature already, throw a thermometer in it, take that pan straight into the oven to finish. You're not going to do that with all your nonstick and all. And I use... One 12-inch lodge skillet, probably more than all the rest of my pots and pans put together. I use the same one every day over and over, and every time I use it, it gets better. So I really recommend that is the core. An 8-inch is nice for size. I actually have two 12s. I have a 10, and I have an 8, and I have a big old uh, 15 double-handled one that's kind of like a paella pan. And, and Jim's asking a question here that I usually wait till the end. So he says his lodge skillet is domed. Is that normal? No, it's not. And I'm going to tell you the number one reason it happens, and people say that they didn't do it, but you probably did. When you heat up a pan and it's empty, it gets very hot very fast, and you need to keep an eye on it. And you can warp it with heating it too fast. People say they came that way. Maybe. I've never seen one. Now, what does domed mean is the other thing. So what does domed mean is the other thing. So does it mean it's a slight little bit raised in the center? If so, just go on with your life and do not worry about it. If you actually mean domed, I put an egg in the middle that slides to the side, right, and it slides to any one of 360 degrees, it's not that my stove's not level, then, yeah, you got a problem. But uh, I don't know if you're the guy, Jim, but somebody said to me in um, 
in Telegram that they bought one at Cracker Barrel, a, a steel one versus a you know, cast iron, which I have. I, I love cast iron, but carbon's better day-to-day use. Um, and he got home with it, and it was domed when he got home with it. Well, then why'd you buy it? I, so it, it seems to me a lot of times you know, instead of buying, if you buy it online, it comes dome. That's not your fault. But if you bought it, maybe it wasn't really domed. And that's the number one thing. Don't let your pans, and I don't care what they are, overheat. You put an empty pan on the stove, even at a relatively mild heat, it heats up so much faster than even just a handful of onions in it. Please know that. That's part of the skills. Uh, next up, you do want a thick bottom stock pot, stainless steel. And that's for making your sauces and soups and, you know, kind of a generally sized eight quart stock pot will do most of what you'll do. I probably use that at least once a week. It'd probably be the least used of all the core gear I'm giving you. And I do think this is not really core gear, but it's a good idea to have a great big stock pot. I have a wonderful one from Ikea. They don't make it anymore. It kind of has a witch's kettle shape to it. and It really is awesome. Um, but Ikea has really great deals on crock pots and I have a link to, or not crock pots, stock pots there. But we're going to kind of skip over that one quick today. Um, I have, like, for my my general size stock pot, mine's from Cuisinart. Not because I love Cuisinart, but Albertsons had a thing where we got shopping points, and my wife was getting free cook, cookware, and she's like, what could we use on, like, a stock pot? So it's really great, but you want a thick bottom on your stock pot stainless steel. Uh, next, you want a good cutting board. And... I'm all for expensive hardwood cutting boards. They require more maintenance and more upkeep to keep them from having problems. I'm about to show you what, in my opinion, is probably the absolute best value in cutting boards as far as not not being easy for you to screw it up with a lack of maintenance. It's made out of bamboo, but it's an end grain bamboo. Be careful. Most cutting boards made out of bamboo are not end grain. They're long grain. And they have a tendency to dull knives much quicker. This one, um, let's see, it says last purchased in 2018 of May. And I'm pretty sure that was one I bought for the same nephew. So I think the, the one that I bought for myself, I've had longer than 2018. So that's a minimum six years. It's still like brand new. You do want to use a good quality mineral oil to maintain your cutting boards. You want to clean them. When you're done on your cutting board, clean it. Mild detergent, hot water, give it a good clean off. What I usually do is I take it and I stand it upright. So on its edge and the divider of my sink, right up against his little balance there, and I let it dry itself that way so that it's not got water sitting on it that can create warpage. But bamboo ones are very forgiving with that. And, you know, every couple of weeks, give it, give it a good food grade quality oil coating. Uh, again, I have a mineral oil in the show notes today that I use all the time. It works really great. And you can use that, or you can use olive oil. You can use whatever oil you would cook with as well. But I think you're going to get better results with the, the mineral oil. Now, I have to say that there's a, there's one problem with that cutting board I just recommended. I think there was like four of them in stock. I found one that looks like it. I have that link in the show notes for you too as well. Again, there will be a link to the blog post and the video notes about an hour after the live version ends and a smaller version of it. There's not a lot of them out there built this way. And it's not really important to me that you buy it from Amazon. It's not really important to me that you buy the exact brand I recommend. I'm trying to recommend the structure, which is thick, heavy, end grain bamboo. And you'll notice it has a ridge around the outside. That ridge catches, like, juice and things like that. So another thing, I do not just preparing food on it, but I'll have it nice and clean. 
I'll set it down. Sometimes we're not going to get into it today, but I'll even do like a chopped herb and I'll dress the steak with, that's a different technique. But if you're setting steaks, chops, chicken on that board and you're letting it rest, what's going to happen is some of that juice is going to come out of the meat and then it ends up all over your countertop and then it's a mess. But if you have that little groove, it gets caught and it's a lot easier to just take paper towel and sop it up if there's a lot of it or something like that. So I like the, 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 the juice groove end grain And then I have some beautiful, don't think I'm crapping on hardwood. I have some gorgeous, I have some custom made hardwood cutting boards. But for the workhorse that's going to, I tell you what to do, but you're not always going to do it. The bamboo ones like that, those things will last forever. You have to truly abuse them for them to get warp separation, things like that. And the best made hardwood ones, you don't take care of it. It will not take care of you. Next up. I want you to make sure that you have a good spatula. I'm actually going to show this one. I know it seems like a little thing, but if you're going to cook with carbon steel and you're going to cook with um, cast iron, this is the spatula that you want. And I don't know if it's in stock or not. It goes out of stock a lot. Uh, but it is It's made by Dexter Russell, and the edges are rounded. And what happens is when you have almost every spatula I've ever tried and you're cooking with metal cookware and that you don't have that, you don't have rounded corners and you don't have a rounded edge. It's sharp. And when you go to scrape material off of the pan or you go to like slide under an egg that's maybe sticking a little bit or something like that, you literally feel like catching and cutting into, so it's metal on metal cutting. And that's, that's not what you want when you're trying to over time as you keep using your cast iron or your, uh, carbon steel cookware. You're trying to create a polymer. So you're constantly cutting into that polymer. This came from Paul Wheaton. It is literally the best spatula I've ever used. It is totally worth a couple extra bucks. I have three of them so that when one's in the dishwasher or something like that, I can find it. I don't like it to go in the dishwasher. To me, if it has a, if it has wood on it, it doesn't belong in a dishwasher, but I have grandkids and they end up there anyway. Sometimes I forget to get, because we have a saying in cooking, it's called mise mise. It's a French saying. It means everything in its place. And so you should have everything ready to go, but there's times I throw a thing in a skillet, like, damn, where's the, so I bought two extra ones, so I can always find one in seconds if I do that to myself. That's how much I like this particular spatula. So just some thoughts on that. Um, kitchen shears, I have a link for that for you guys. Uh, Fiskers, they're like eight bucks, best ones in the market today. With kitchen shears, you want shears. They must come apart. They must not fall apart when you're using them. They need micro serration so that they will equally cut well herbs and stuff like that. You're trimming up for a salad and break a chicken down and cut the backbone out of a chicken. If it won't do that, I won't have them. The best ones ever made were made by a company called Red Yeniware. They don't make them anymore. Fiskers is a good second choice. I have a link to that. A simple mortar and pestle. Let me pull up. The one that I have, I, I think this is one of these things that a lot of people, you know, everybody wants like some giant, heavy-duty, badass mortar and pestle, molcajete or something like that. Again, I like stuff like that. I have a great big, beautiful lava rock version for making salsas and stuff like that. But a simple little one of any size, it can be wood, it can be marble, I don't care. Mine's olive wood. I, I really just think it's, I like things that look cool. And the olive, olive wood is just a gorgeous wood. It's very hard. It lasts forever. Mainly I'm using this for things like I'm going to do an herb rub and I'm going to do like rosemary and thyme. And the, the, the dried rosemary leaves are, are, are they're long needles. And I want more of a grind. And I'm not making a bunch of it. I don't want to throw it in a coffee grinder or something like that 
or maybe I'm breaking up some uh, peppercorns that I want coarse, or I'm doing something with cumin, whole seed, or something like that. Drop that stuff in there. Rosemary and thyme is a perfect example. You throw a teaspoon of rosemary and thyme in that, and you just kind of pop it a little bit and grind it around. You get a beautiful rub. So you get an herbed rub. So we take a steak. We take that rosemary, thyme, and black pepper. We crank the black pepper out of our pepper mill. We put that rosemary and thyme on it. We get a really great, thin, sticky to that steak. So when we sear that steak high heat, we get that flavor infused into the steak, and we get that nice, beautiful, what they call a mollard reaction. And so I really, like, that's one of those things that people don't think they need, but I, I really recommend that you consider adding it. And, again, I don't care what you buy. I'm just showing you what I have, something like that. You want a good meat thermometer. I'm not going to pull it up on the screen. I want to keep moving along here as quick as I can, but you need an instant read, and that's a little one open like a, like a, like a folding knife, and we take the temperature of whatever we're cooking, and we get an answer like in seconds. And when we're doing finishing in the oven, we want a good remote thermometer. thermometer. I use meter thermometers for that, M-E-A-T-E-R, links in the notes. I have the block. It has four separate ones. So if I'm doing four steaks, I can bring steaks to different temperatures. I find it to be very accurate. I find all the thermometers to never be perfectly accurate. You start learning your thermometer as you go. The meter comes with an app. You can say, I'm cooking this, and this is what I want, and it will literally tell you when to remove it. Sometimes I go a little earlier or later than it says from past experience. So when you're like, my thermometer's not exactly accurate, I'm going to tell you that I, I think that when you're cooking a block of meat and you have a piece of steel in it taking its temperature, that piece of meat is never perfectly uniform, so it's giving you an aggregate average. It's doing its best. Some thermometers are crap, but you can calibrate your thermometer. One of the great ways to see if your thermometer is accurate, assuming it goes down low to freezing, is take a glass of ice water with a little bit of salt in it. It should be read about 32 degrees when you put it in there. And you can do boiling water, and it should read 212 degrees. And with those two things, you can form in your mind kind of – mine reads a couple degrees lower, a couple degrees high. But in the end – don't overthink this. This is, but this is how when you're trying to make a medium steak, you can get a medium steak. When you're cutting, just the thing on this, when you're cooking thin cuts of meat, it all goes out the window. You have to learn to be able to tell the, 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 how the meat feels and looks to be able to do that. And really thin meat, don't even try to do it rare or, or medium rare. What you do then is a real high heat sear quick so you don't lose the moisture and you're doing something more like Korean barbecue when you do that, right? Uh, next up, I really think it makes a lot of sense to have my item of the day for tea spouse today is a, uh, a press. And, um, what I'm talking about is for like bacon is what a lot of people use it for. I don't really use it for bacon that much because mostly I do my bacon in the oven. We won't be talking about to that, that today. Uh, but when you're doing steaks, you're doing chops, you're doing meat that tends to curl up, you're doing burgers, a lot of times it makes a lot of sense to, to have a way to make sure you have good surface contact. So I don't want cast iron. I don't want something that weighs a couple of pounds pushing down and pressing, even though they call it a press. What I'm looking for is to be able to hold that item so it makes good surface contact. You'll see a lot of times chefs talk about when you put the steak in, hold your fingers and press on it for a little bit. And it works, but I have other things to do. And I have a write-up of exactly how to use this. This is a new model of a very old thing. The one that I have, you'll see on the screen right there, that's my hand. It's I don't know how old it is, but it's over 100 years old. And the reason I know it's over 100 years old is the company that made it 
uh, is been out of business for a hundred years. So it's at least, I found it in an antique shop. I think it was 10 or 20, 10, 10 bucks. And so people have asked me about getting one of these for a long time. And I've always said, I, I don't think you can other than looking for one in an antique shop and hoping you find one. The one complaint that I found about it on Amazon uh, from people who bought it was that they burnt their hands on it because there's not a lot of space to like stick your whole hand under there. I guess like you're trying to punch somebody in the face with it or not. That's user error in my opinion. Yes, hot metal will burn you, so don't let it do it. My big thing with that, though, again, is good surface contact, preventing curling when you're doing burgers, preventing that kind of puff up in the middle. Just that little bit of weight will do that and also will help carry heat through. The other thing that I'll do with it often is I'll put it in a second pan. I'll bring it up to temperature so it's a little bit hot. It's not screaming hot because you don't want to work that pan, like I said, but then you have heat from above and below. Or if there's enough room in the pan, you can actually set it on the pan while you're searing one side, and then when you flip it, add it to the top, keep that contact. Little tip here when you're doing steaks, chops, things like that, and you're going to put them into a pan, you're going to sear, which we're going to talk about today. Uh, but it's not in the notes, so I'll add it right here. If it has a big fat cap on one side of it, that's wonderful, but fat shrinks faster than protein. So when you have those steaks or chops or whatever, and they kind of curl on you and you just don't like the appearance of them, take your knife and cut through the fat on the edge lengthwise, not lengthwise, horizontally across, like you see my hand right here. You might have to look the video up like that in a few places on that fat. So when that fat shrinks up, it's not completely curling the meat. And then here's your bonus. When you do that and your meat's done and you're about to take it out of the pan, take your tongs. I didn't put tongs. You should have a good pair of tongs. Turn it up and sear the fat on the outside of the cap. That's not going to make your meat get overdone because you're holding the meat vertically and sear that fat cap because that is golden flavor and that's something you definitely want to happen. All right, so let's get into uh, one more thing. One more thing before we move on. Uh, and I'm going to close this extra window so hopefully it's not caused any problems for skipping voices. Nobody seems to be complaining. Salt, good black pepper. I'm all about the rosemary, the thyme, the cumin, the paprika, smoked paprika. Like, my spice rack is insane, the amount of seasoning spices. Rosso Lanut seasoning. Like, I love all of it. Uh, I use sumac as a seasoning, right? But salt and pepper, salt and pepper, onion, garlic, I can do anything. And salt is the most, most important seasoning that you have. When you hear, especially when you hear a British chef say, season it, that means put salt and pepper on it. That's what it means. Season well, that means make sure you put enough. And it means salt more than it means pepper. And the salt I've kind of come down on is my go-to all-purpose, do-it-all salt. And I use like Maldon flake salt for finishing and stuff on artsy-fartsy things, but day-to-day, Redmond's. And I used to be big on in your salt box, you have your kosher salt because it's got a coarser texture and you can pick. And I, I was like, did, did you ever have trouble doing anything? No. So I use Redmond's. That's my favorite salt. I love the way it kind of puts a pseudo cure on meat as well. And so we're going to get to that. So let's start with the skills now, the skills you need to master. And if you master these, you really don't need recipes anymore unless you're baking some kind of artsy-fartsy thing or you're doing kind of some kind of special presentation or something like that. If you come to my house and you hand me a meat and a vegetable, I can cook it. I Two vegetables and a meat. Two vegetables, a meat, and mushrooms. And you give me no instructions. I'll make it delicious. 
because I'm going to focus on techniques. And the first technique in the place that most people are the weakest is knife skills. And the reason we've become so weak at knife skills is because everything that we eat is prepared for us, right? We don't learn how to take a bird apart. We don't learn how to slice an onion, for God's sakes. And the most important thing that I think people don't know how to do is slice vegetable. And it leads to a lot of people cutting themselves. And it's a, it's a real simple, this is, if you're watching the video, this is all you need right here. You have your ring finger and your index finger just slightly behind your, your go F yourself finger. And you have your finger and see, and you allow the straight part, this part between your second and third knuckle right here to be your guide. And the, the back of the knife rides along that guide right there. And if you'll do that, you can slice thick or thin and you're not going to cut yourself. Now I'm, I love to cook. I pride myself on my cooking skills. I think I have good knife skills. I'm not one of these guys like you see on TV that's like, bah, 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 can do it blindfolded. And like, that's the skill you need if you're going to work in a restaurant though. That's one of the first things that a chef wants to know when they're going to hire cooks. Do you have knife skills in a real restaurant? Not some place where shit comes out of a bag, but knife skills are in, incredibly important. But learn that basic technique. Learn to slice and chop veg and then learn, like, if I'm making a dish, how thick or thin do I slice the vegetables? Well, what do you want it to do? If I'm making a base for a soup or a stew, which we're going to talk about in a second, I want to be pretty finely chopped. If I'm doing a stir fry of vegetable, I might want to be big or thin, depending on the vegetable, how long I'm going to cook it. I might want to think about it from a standpoint of, am I going to separate it? If I'm doing green beans and broccoli, for instance, I'm going to slice into pieces that are going to be spoon-sized, fork-sized, whatever that I'm going to eat. I don't want to have to cut that. But I'm going to take my broccoli, I'm going to take the florets, the heads off my broccoli, I'm going to put it in one pile. I'm going to slice up the stalks to about the size of the green beans. And when I go to saute that, I'm going to drop the, the stems of the broccoli and the green beans first. I'm going to cook them till they're bright green. And I'm going to add the florets toward the end and give it a flip or two because they don't take anywhere near as long to cook. And I don't want the stems to be really hard or the beans to be have that raw character to them. And my wife likes those things cooked more than I do, so I'll cook it more than I like it. But then I'll throw those florets at the end so they're not wilted to crap. But when it comes to knife skills, it's size and it's, it's staging things. So I never do a, a vegetable stir fry where I just take all the vegetables and throw it on at one time, unless they all are very compatible. Zucchini cooks a hell of a lot faster than carrots. So if I was doing a zucchini and carrot side, I would prepare both. I would then use the carrots first and get them till they're almost where I want to just finish off with the zucchini. Just really basic stuff. That's a technique. What's the recipe? Carrots and zucchini. It's carrots and zucchini, salt and pepper. Saute it in olive oil, infused olive oil. I don't care, butter, whatever you want. But it's the technique of going first with the carrots, then with the zucchini. By the way, sage is beautiful on it. Sage and butter and carrots, and then the zucchini at the end. Or zucchini and yellow squash. Well, what if I'm using patty pans? I don't care. The technique remains the same, but master slicing those vegetables Master cutting up meat. Like, you need to look at a piece of meat, think about what you're doing, it, how long you're cooking it, how tender it is, and do I actually want to add texture to it, or do I want to make it more tender? Because the way we slice meat can can do all of that. I have can't tell you how many times, and I've seen it in restaurants. Flank steak for fajitas. 
The flank steak is the flank, right? It's basically like beef bacon, beef belly. And it's a fairly tough muscle because it gets a lot of work, but it actually can be quite tender. And you get this big, long strip. And which way does your grain go? It goes across, you know, it goes across the long dimension, like from a, it goes across the short dimension. So it just has this beautiful vein in it. And then what do they do? They cut it along with the grains. So you got the long grain. And now when you go to eat your fajita, what happens? It's not that it's tough. It's that the grain is that way. You pull the whole piece of meat out of the fajita. So how do you slice it? Whether you're slicing it before or after you cook it, you go across that grain. And then when you bite into it, you're pulling that grain apart. So there's times when we actually, maybe we have something tender. We actually want to kind of go the other way with it because we want a little more tooth to it because we're going to cook it hot and fast and it's not going to get tough. Sometimes we have a piece of meat and we're like, you know, that would be beautiful to cook that big giant chunk of meat low and slow or to even like sear and finish in the oven. I don't have time today. So then maybe I want to take that big, beautiful ribeye. I'm going to cut it thin and I'm going to cut it across the grain, like on an angle downward, really thin. I'm going to give it a marinade. I'm going to, I'm going to, that thing's going to hit the frying pan and it's going to come out. Like it's going to be so thin that it hits, flip it once and it's done. It might even get a sear on it if I'm really hot. It's going to be delicious. It's not going to dry it out. And if you cook the meat to the same doneness as a whole steak, you'd, you'd be like, you've sinned against meat. So I'm big on the whole medium to rare thing for me. And I push my wife more and more toward at least can we just get you down to a medium rare? But it doesn't mean that every piece of meat needs to be pink. And so learning the knife skills to deal with a piece of meat. Like I said, when it comes to a steak or a chop with a big, giant, end on it, big cap. I don't want to cut that off, but I might want to go in there and actually score it in hashes. I might go on an angle against the edge and then go on a back angle against the edge. Now that that piece of meat, when that fat starts to shrink, that fat can give some. It's not going to curl that ribeye or that beautiful pork chop up. But now when I take that and I take my tongs and I sear that off, I'm going to get a beautiful fat rendering and a beautiful fat crisping just because I put a little bit of texture in it. If I'm going to do a duck breast, you bet your butt I'm going to pull three lines across the skin of that breast. I want to go into the fat, not into the duck. And I'm going to connect the ends of them. I'm going to come back with cross patches. And I'm going to sear that. And that's going to render out that duck fat beautifully. It's going to make that skin crisp up. I'm not going to know how to cook a duck breast today, but that's, that's one of the, that's a knife skill. And you also want to learn how to take birds apart. Most of you guys, if you're going to learn how to take primals apart, so that's when we buy like a big cut of beef and we're going to break it down into steaks or chops or something like that, you're going to learn that skill separately. There's not a lot of buying of primals in grocery stores and butcher shops today. There just isn't. You can get some, but overall you won't. But every place has whole chickens and whole gooses and whole ducks if they sell gooses and ducks. And many of us, we raise our own. And so we have this whole chicken or this whole goose or this whole duck. And learn to break that animal down. Learn where the joints are. You should be able to take a leg quarter of a chicken, a goose, a duck, a turkey. And you should be able to separate the leg from the thigh with any knife without doling it, without going through bone. You're going right through that joint, but there's a way to do it. And you almost have to experience it to be able to do that. When you're doing wings and you're going to break the wing down instead of cook the wing whole, you take the the kind of the drumette and you have the wing. So it's going up, down and the, the wing is pointing up at the end 
and you take that and you push down on it, and that'll make that wingtip extend, and that knife will go right through that wingtip. That wingtip comes off, flip it over, and go right through the joint between the second and the third joint of the, the drumette and the, the middle piece of the wing. That should cut like that. What do you do with those wingtips? What do you do with them, guys? Do you throw them away? I guess if you feed them to your dogs, you can do that. What I do, I throw them all in Ziploc bags until they collect up, and I use them when I make stock because they have a lot of gelatin in them. So always be thinking, what can I do with this extra piece? I'd much rather have a few whole chickens and break them down myself than parts, even if I was going to break them down apart and not do a whole roast chicken. So learn to take those birds apart. So if you learn those basic knife skills, slicing meat, slicing veg, and breaking down birds, you're ahead of 90% of people in America today. It's sad, but it's true. Next up is searing meat. And this is something that I see people struggle with all the time. They're trying to get that good brown on their meat, and they can't. And the most basic thing you can do to get a good sear on your meat is that meat, when it goes into the pan, should be bone dry. That means that we take, if it's, I didn't have time to do any pre-work on it, I just have to cook and I want to get sear, paper towel and just literally push on it and get every bit of moisture off it you can. You're trying to take that piece of meat, go down on the hot steel, and get what's called a Mollard reaction. There's actually some little bits of sugar in the protein in meat, and you're actually causing it to caramelize. That's what's, what's making that happen. If there's any moisture in there, even though you can't see it, you're basically steaming or boiling. And so just think of it. If you put a quarter inch of water in the pan and then tried to sear a pork chop, you know damn well it's not going to sear. That little tiny bead of moisture separating the pan and that surface that's, I don't care what you do. And the other thing that can do that is oil or grease. So when you take your pan and you put a whole glug of olive oil in it like that, and then you drop meat that's also got some moisture content in it, it's going to be really hard to get a sear. So you want to use as little oil, grease, fat on the initial sear anyway as you, as you can. And often that means none. If you take care of your pans the way I said, which is we clean them, we oil them, we wipe them off, we heat them until they just begin to smoke. There's a little bit of oil there. And so you'll need none or just a drizzle of oil to get that initial sear. Then if you want to cook with more fat, you can. Use butter. It'll turn color, but it's because you're scorching the butter. With butter, if I'm going to use butter, I like to use it at the end. If I'm going to cook with butter, I like to use ghee, which means the solids are removed, so it's a much clean cooker, more cooking fat. The next thing, though, is if you have the time. And you want to get a great sear on your meat. Salt and or add your herbs and seasoning the day before or at least the morning of. So what I like to do when I have time, when we pre-plan, we'll take the steak out. We'll let it defrost in the refrigerator. And the day before or the morning of, I'll take that steak out. I'll, I'll blot it off with a paper towel. Do the same thing with pork, even chicken, all the same thing. And I'll salt it at minimum. Sometimes I'll add the other seasoning. A lot of times I only salt it. I'll take it and put it on a sheet tray so it doesn't drip down into it and make nastiness and cross-contaminate. And I'll set it uncovered on a cooling rack. So this is like a little, you know, square, looks like a little screen. And it sits right inside a half tray, which is the, your, your pan that goes in your oven to bake things. And I'll let, so that way the air can circulate around it. And about halfway through the day, flip it over because the bottom will be more moist than the top. What's going to happen? Now, you don't oversalt it, but don't be afraid to put some salt on it when you do this. That meat will start to get sticky. 
It'll start to get sticky as the moisture gets pulled out of it and the salt gets pulled into it. And you'll watch the texture change. And if you use the red and salt, it will get a deeper, if it's a red meat, it'll get deeper red. It looks beautiful. It starts to break down the muscle fibers. It makes it more tender. But then you can go back with your pepper. Let's say I want to do an herbed crust. So I'll take something like, and I don't have it in the show notes. I'll try to remember to add it to you. Lowry's seasoning pepper. It doesn't make any sense why it's stuff so good, but it's delicious and it makes a great herb crust. So Lowry, Lowry's herb, uh, seasoned pepper, Lowry's seasoned pepper. And then you grind up the thyme and the rosemary in your mortar and pestle. You make a mix of that and you sprinkle it on. Let it sit for about an hour more before you put it into the pan and cook it. And you'll get this amazing herb crust. I've done that same herb crust with sous vide, but we're not going to get that in today, into that today. But the last time I made that, herb crust that way and I I did sous vide lamb I think and my buddy David and his wife Mona were over and when I brought it out and I served it to them he just he just said to her after he took a couple bites did you see that crust he put on it right like he like it's an impactful thing and it's because there's a little bit of sugar in that season don't worry it's not going to blow your diet or anything it's not enough relative to the whole but sometimes a little bit of sugar adds to that caramelization that that mollard reaction Next, let it come up to temperature for about an hour before you put it in the pan if you have time. I'm not saying you have to do this. I'm saying your results will be better. So what I do is I'll have that steak seasoned, salted, whatever, in the refrigerator. Sometimes it's just salt and pepper. I don't always go that extra mile with herbs and stuff like that. Sometimes salt, pepper, garlic powder. It's, it's whatever you feel. Onion powder is a great thing to add to a, a, an herb rub like that. But whatever it is, take it out of the refrigerator. You're not going to die. You're not going to get sick about an hour before you're going to cook. Let the temperature on the surface and the internal point of that meat begin to come up so it's not ice cold when it hits the pan. It's going to sear much better. You don't want flies and stuff on it? I'll tell you what I do. I put it on a like a little a small cutting board or a plate, put it in the microwave. It's the only time I put steak in the microwave. I don't turn the microwave on, though. You know why I put it in the microwave? You close the door. It's about room temperature in there. There's no bugs. There's no flies. There's nothing to get on it. The dog's not going to steal it. Or I'll put it if the oven's not being used for something, I'll stick it in the oven. Just don't forget. Set a reminder or something so your steak's not there tomorrow. You ate, you know, your buddy brought food over. You ate hoagies, and now you got rotted, nasty steak. But that's that's what I do. I always just put it in the microwave or the oven. Then I don't have flies on. I don't have dogs eating it. Real simple. Um, as little oil as needed in the pan maximize your surface contact. So if you're cooking like boneless chicken thigh and it's all contorted out of space, you can pound it out without going like paper thin. Take a Ziploc bag that you're going to throw away, put your skinless, boneless, or your skin side chicken thing in there. You don't need a big mouth. Just take your fist and just kind of pound it out till it gets a little bit bigger than it was. That's going to even things out. You're going to get a much better contact and you're only going to brown where you get contact. I know that seems obvious, but – and that's where that press comes in. So chicken, especially like dark meat chicken, since there's so much fat, it likes the curl. We can just – and you can use that one press, move it around from piece to piece, maintain some surface contact. If you notice, like, all these pieces are browning, but this sucker isn't, there's probably a cool spot in the pan. Move it. I know that sounds crazy, but move it to a place where something's browning a little bit better and rotate out the one that's already browned. That'll help you get that good sear. Um, next, you want a hot pan, but not a 
screaming hot pan. If you get just the, the whiff, little wisp of smoke from whatever oil you're using, you're at the limit of what that oil will do. Back your heat down, throw your meat in, your pan temperature is going to drop the second you do that. If you're going to do this, then you have to be paying attention. If you're not, bring your oil to shimmering and go. If you really want to take the pan to like the limit of what you can do with that oil before you start to break it down and ruin it, you can take it to that whiff of smoke point and immediately you'll bring the temperature down when you start cooking. This is all so much easier, by the way, guys, if you own a gas, a gas range. If you own electric, induction, glass top, whatever, you're going to have to adapt and do the best you can. But if I didn't have a propane tank for my stove, I would have had one installed because I like to cook and it's that good. If nothing else, then I would get you know, like the Camp Chef stove I recommend or something like that. So when you really want to use gas, you can. It is night and day difference. You're not going to go to a high-end restaurant, go in the back, and see the chefs using an electric range. I'm not saying you suck if you have one. And Jake Robbins says, says, griddle, I have a Blackstone, and I love it. And I love it. And we're going to do a show on Blackstone cooking in a future day. You're, you're damn right. Okay. And then don't crowd your pan. Let's say that you have eight pieces of chicken to, to cook. And you can make all eight pieces of chicken fit in your 12-inch skillet. You know what you should do? Cook four pieces of chicken, move them out of the skillet, cook the other four pieces of chicken, and then go on with your day. If you're going to do something where you're going to, like, sear the chicken and then finish it in the oven, it's totally cool. Sear it, put it into a separate plate, bowl, whatever, cutting board, sear the second batch, put it back in, and finish it together. That's fine. But during searing, don't crowd. You should probably use no more than about 60% of the surface area because what happens is, Moisture starts coming out of that food, and then the food itself holds the moisture in, and now you're steaming boiling instead of searing. If you do that, you will get incredible results with your searing. Your searing will get so much better overnight, you'll be like, wow, it was always that easy. The last tip, assuming you're not crowding the pan, when you turn meat, don't turn it over where it is. Turn it from an area you're using to an area that you weren't using. Because when you turn it, you're taking the cold side of the meat and you're taking the pan that's already had the heat going into the meat and it's already a lower temperature. So if you took one of the little thermal guns I recommend by E-Tech City and you take the temperature of your pan, you pull your meat off and you take the temperature right next, it'll be a little bit lower. So turn over to an unused space. This is also great when you're stirring on grills and griddles as well. Turn over to an unused space. That's why griddles are so great. There's so much space to work with. All right, moving on. Let's talk about making vegetable bases. This is a skill. We're not going to get into so much what you do with it today other than we already talked about soups, but there's so many dishes that if I'm going to make a sauce or a soup or anything beyond just cooking the meat, I'm going to start with a base. Some of the most famous ones are like mirepoix. Mirepoix is the classic French, onion, onion, celery, and, and carrot. Uh, Holy Trinity, which is basically the kind of French Creole... Louisiana, New Orleans version of the mirepoix, which is onions, celery, and sweet peppers. There's various sofritos. There's, there's tons of different vegetable bases that we'll start with. So if they say use the mirepoix, you're going to use, if classic, equal amounts. One-third white onion, one-third carrot, one-third celery. And if you're like, well, what if I don't have white onion? What if I have yellow onion? Use the yellow onion. What if you have red onion? I don't know. Try it. 
See how it comes out, right? But you're creating an aromatic blend. And when you're doing a mirepoix, sofrito, whatever, this is my rules. One, use some salt. At least a little bit of salt because it helps pull moisture from the vegetable. And so there's where you go with that. If you're doing something where you really are trying to bring sweetness, caramelization, whatever, to your onions, you may or may not do your onions first and then your rest of your vegetables second. Usually you can do it all together, but it depends. If you're doing onions and it's not really a sofrito or mirepoix, you're just doing onions as a base, same thing, take your time. Bring the temperature up enough that we're getting a good saute, but let's not burn or scorch. If it says to caramelize vegetables... That does not mean cook them till they're brown as quickly as you can. It means cook them slowly until they turn brown. What we're doing is we're actually concentrating the sugars. The sugars come out and coat the outside of the vegetable, and it literally is caramelizing. The same as you would if you make caramel candy, you basically take sugar and water, and you keep boiling it at a slow boil until the sugar caramelizes. It is the same exact technique we're doing with vegetables. There's sugar in the vegetable. We're bringing it to a caramelization, so take your time. Uh, next, if you're going to use garlic, garlic has a lot of sugar, a lot of flavor, and if you do that with garlic, you tend to scorch it no matter how hard you try not to. So if something's like onions and garlic, but you're supposed to caramelize the onions, get the onions almost there, add your garlic at the end, and go on with the rest of your recipe or procedure, whatever it is you're doing. Use as little oil as you can in the pan. You don't need a lot of oil to do this. Usually a teaspoon to a tablespoon of like an olive oil or I use, I use lard and beef towel a lot with this because I like to use animal fats. Uh, avocado oil, what have you. I like to use oils that are healthy oils. Seed oils are not healthy oils. Don't use them. Um, next, um, deglaze in the end. No matter what your, whose recipe you're following, whatever, use something to deglaze. Use white wine, sherry, use chicken stock, use water. When you make something like this, there's going to be little bits and pieces of it stuck to the bottom. That's money. That's flavor. Color is flavor. All right? So by hitting it with a deglaze and then take your, you know, whatever you're cooking with. If you're in cast iron, you're probably using like a cast iron or a carbon steel. I'm going to use something like a spatula I showed you. When I do this with stainless, like a stainless steel stock pot, if I'm making a base in that, I generally use basically a wooden spatula, and I'll just use that, and I'll kind of push. And if anything's gotten stuck on the top, you turn your pan and use the deglazing liquid to get all of that stuck off your pan. Instead of cooking it on there, if you're going to cook the rest of the way, and it ends up really hard to clean later, and you also lost the flavor. So all these deglaze, and then understand that, like, let's say you're cooking something. It says deglaze with white wine. You don't have any white wine. What do you do? Chicken stock. Use beer. Use something. What do you what do you use? What do you substitute? What are you making? Think about the flavor profile. You know, if I'm doing something with chicken and it's going to be kind of lighter fare, I probably don't want to deglaze with an IPA or a stout. But a light beer, that'd be fine, right? Or apple cider, like a hard cider, or chicken stock. You know, or beef. Beef would be richer, so deglaze with stock. If you have nothing else, deglaze with water. Don't think you're going to destroy something because most of the flavor is in the thing that you just did. That's why that we did it, right? Next, um, when you, if you want to do a sear and oven finish, I think this is a fantastic thing to learn how to do. So we already talked about searing. 
Searing and oven finishing is going to be for things like poultry, especially dark meat that can handle it, thicker cuts of meat. But let's just talk about it from the standpoint of we've got this beautiful ribeye. And I'm, I'm not cooking out on the grill because it's a 1,000 degrees outside like it is right now. I'm not going to sous vide it because I don't feel like it. And if I cook that thing in a pan and I leave it in that pan that long, I'm literally going to just blacken the outsides of both sides of it because it's so thick. I need to get heat throughout it. So I'm going to go through and do everything we already said, and I'm going to get a good sear. Do not do this and then turn the oven on. Whatever temperature you're going to have your oven to finish, go ahead and I already know where this is going to go, so let's go ahead and block users because Selfie Queen is not someone who really needs to be here because I know where that's going. Anyway, um, so we're going to have that oven. Let's say 350 is going to be our finishing temperature oven. That oven needs to be preheated before I even turn the pan on or at least damn close. And I'm going to sear my meat, have the oven at temperature, and I'm going to go from the, the stovetop. As soon as I get my sear on one side and get my sear about halfway to where I want it on the other, without flipping that meat, I'm going to take that pan. I'm going to go straight in the oven. When you do that, there's two ways that you can – there's three ways you can know you're done this. You could have done that steak on that oven at that temperature in that pan so many times that you know it's going to take 10 minutes, and you'll get there. Most people are not going to be able to do that. Another way is you're going to take it out, and you're going to dick around with it. And you're going to do the old, you know, you can actually use your fingers. So if you if you push right here on your hand, right by your pinky or your palm, right here, down here, that's going to be rare. And then as you touch your fingers, it gets like this one. That's like medium and then medium well and like that. Like you can do that. And then you're going to let a lot of heat out of your oven. And you're going to disrupt your cooking process. Or... You're going to open it up. You're going to take an instant retemperature on it, and you're going to aim for, I don't know, 138, whatever it is, whatever temperature you want your meat at. That's better because it's fast. It's you open the oven, you stick it in, don't burn your hand. Okay, I'm at 130. I need to let it go, and we'll get to resting and the fact that temperatures come up in just a second. The best way is to have some sort of a thermometer that you stick it into that meat, and you can read the internal temperature while the oven door is closed. This is where I like the meter. My new oven has an integrated thermometer, and as long as it's a big piece of meat, it works as a big probe. But, like, for a roast or something, great way to do a roast. Plugs into the oven. It tells me right on the oven where the temperature is going to be. That's your, that's your gold standard. So number one is you get so good you don't need it, and you need to be cooking uniform amounts of meat. And the problem with that is unless you set a timer, we all get distracted, or you're using a remote thermometer. Those are too great. And I would say from there, you know, it's up to you. But that is the basics. And a, and a sear oven finish, there's reverse sears. There's all kinds of artsy farty shit we'll talk about. But that is just a fantastic way to do your big hunks of meat, your roasts, and things like that. You get all that flavor. Maybe we're even doing a base, right? So we do our, our, our vegetable base. We pull that out of the pan. We do our sear. We put the base back into the pan. We put the probe, the thermometer in the roast. We put the roast in. And we finish the roast. And when I say roast here, I'm not talking about giant roast. I'm talking about someone's going to feed, you know, two to four people. And we're probably not going to have a lot of leftovers if we're going to do it that way. Because otherwise, we're going to overcook the vegetable base. All right. Now, let it rest before you cut into it when you bring it out. You bring it out. You cooked your steak to 138, 140 degrees. Big, thick ribeye. 
It's going to be beautifully pink. A little more than I'd like it, but my wife will eat it, so I went ahead and cooked it that way. It's full of moisture, and it's full of oils. And just think about oil. You take oil, you put it in the refrigerator to go to an extreme. What happens to it? It turns into like a gel. You set it on the countertop, it's thick oil. You put it in a frying pan, you heat it up, and it pours like water. does the same thing inside meat. Fats inside meat, when they're too hot, and you cut that meat, that's when you see all that juice running. You go, look how juicy it is. And you go, why doesn't it taste juicy? Because all the juice is now on your cutting board or your countertop if you didn't have a groove in your cutting board. So we take that meat and we're going to let it rest. Here's the other thing. If you wanted the internal temperature of that beautiful ribeye to hit 140 degrees of peak, you probably want to pull it at 135, 136 degrees. Because if you do and you have a remote thermometer, just leave it in there, set it there on the board to let it cool, and watch what your thermometer does. It's out of the oven. 70 degrees in the house. you got the air conditioner crank. You don't care what the EPA says. Screw them. I'm going to keep my house cool. Surely the temperature is going to go down. It's like 136, 137, a couple seconds later, a couple minutes later, 138. And you'll watch. It'll climb about 5 degrees on average. Some pieces of meat will climb higher, some less. There's a radiant. It, it, it just it happens with meats. And once it went there, you can't undo it. And I've seen meat go from 135 to 142, 143 while it's resting. You want to watch that temperature. Like I said, in time you'll learn. You look at the meat, you go, it's ready to cut into. Let that temperature come back down. Serving temperature of meat should be about 125, 130. I didn't say the cooking temperature, the serving temperature. At the most. You don't, I don't like cold food. I like my food warm. I like soups hot. But a piece of meat like that, you want a nice, you know, kind of, 120-ish even is like a great serving temperature. If you do that, you'll find you get more flavor from the food, and you're going to get a lot less runoff. Also, if you want to use your food as leftovers, you're not going to finish that. You'll find that you'll have a piece of meat that you can reheat if you follow this procedure. And all of a sudden, everything is just better. Uh, next, soups. Okay, it's all the same. Everything I've given you today leads up to making great soups. And you bring me leftover meat, you bring me fresh meat, you bring me bones, you bring me vegetables, you bring me water, you bring me salt and pepper, various herbs. I will make you a soup. I don't even care. Don't care what it is. I'm going to bring you duck and some leftover sausage. Great. Duck and sausage soup. Sounds awesome. Can I use the celery I have in the refrigerator? Yep. Okay. Here's some garlic. We're going to make some duck and sausage celery soup. Sounds freaking good. What if the sausage is duck sausage? Ah, what if it's andouille? Andouille sausage and duck soup. That sounds pretty good. So how are we going to make a soup? Number one, we're going to brown our protein, assuming it's not already browned. And even if it is, let's say we have a leftover hunk of beef. And we're going to turn that into some sort of soup. I don't care if there's some other protein, wood or anything. We're not worried about overcooking it now. It's going to go in soup. So, like, now I will give you another way to do this. Let's say you had a beautiful piece of ribeye. You could make it basically like a redneck pho. So you make a beautiful stock. You take that beautiful piece of ribeye. You slice it uber thin. You don't ever put it in the oven. You don't ever put it in a frying pan. You put your soup. You put you put it into your bowl and you ladle your soup over and let the soup warm it. You can take that approach. But we're not doing that today. We're just going to make a soup. We got some. We go. We're going to make hunter soup. What's hunter soup? Well, normally that would be like chicken. I'm mean, sorry, like squirrel. You have some squirrel, you have some grouse, you have some venison left over. Like, but we don't have that. We have like, we got a pork chop left over. 
We've got a chunk of a steak left over, and we got some chicken left over. That'll work. We're going to cut up all that meat. We're not worried about getting a really great sear here. We just want to get a little bit of brown in color on it. So we're going to take some oil. We're going to go down in the skillet. We're going to get it nice and hot. We're going to throw that meat in there. We're going to give it a toss. Use your spatula if you have to, if you haven't developed the ability to do tossing yet. Anyway, when you see the chefs that are, like, doing the tossing, it's easy to learn how to do. It, it really is. Take some dry beans. Don't heat it up and teach yourself with dry beans. Do it outside so when you spill the beans, they just grow new beans, right? Learn that skill. The main reason you do that is you don't break up the material. Like, things stick and you hit it with a spatula, you start crumbling it and breaking it. So it's more for delicate stuff. Anyway, you throw your protein in and we're going to have a good brown. Simple. Take the, take the meat out and deglaze. If you're making it, you're going to use chicken stock. Use chicken stock to deglaze. Use white wine. I don't care. Deglaze it. So we're going to hit it and we're going to break loose all the good bits and kind of cook down the glaze a little bit. Add all your vegetables that are going to be long-term vegetables. Not finishing vegetables. So your base, your mirepoix, your, your carrot, celery, and onion. Add that. Cook it till it begins to caramelize and brown. Take your time with this. This is the difference between Campbell's and beautiful soup. Right? So we're going to cook that. And this can be just leftovers. It'll amaze you what you can come up with. Return the protein. Give it a bit of a stir. And then add the amount of liquid you think you need to make a soup. After it reduces from simmering, you can always add more. So don't add too much. A few cups, four cups, six cups. I don't know. It depends on how much you have, how much soup you want to make. Do you want a thin soup so it's mostly broth? Do you want a soup that's more like broth on top of meat and vegetables? It's up to you. And simmer until your veg is soft and your meat is tender. And this is an interesting thing. A lot of times meat that was tender the night before, once you start to cook it in liquid like this, It'll go from tender to tough, and we're going to simmer it like slow cooking back around till it's tender again, till it's tender to the fork. Now, we could have soup right there. We could be done. Salt and pepper to taste all along the way. Always be salting, but be careful because as you reduce liquid, the intensity of salt increases. When you get a reduction, no salt goes out in the steam. So here's a great way. I do this with my wife all the time when we're cooking something new. To, to get her more of a culinary intuition. We'll get a sh couple shot glasses. And we're a sauce, a soup, anything. When you get to that point where you've added the liquid and you're beginning the reduction, take a spoon and fill up one of the shot glasses with the broth. Okay, Set it to the side and taste it right then. And say to yourself, self, does this need more salt? And withhold the temptation to do it, but remember the taste. Finish your reduction when you're going to do the next step. Fill up another shot glass. Let it cool down and taste them side by side. This is how you start to become, I don't need to measure anymore. I've done this before. Think about how many things in your life, you just do it, you don't second guess yourself. You're like, I did this a million times. Think about how many things in, at work, when you, if you had a job, the first time you did it, like you had to really focus and go, I don't want to screw this up. And now like you're talking to three people and you're doing it, you're not even thinking about it. It's just a peripheral thing that has to get done. If you do things like this, you start to get that intuition. Like when you taste it, you go, it seems like it needs a little salt. I'll wait. I'll try it later. Or I know that's going to need some more salt. Let's go ahead and do it now. Right? So do this. Do this this way. Try that the next time you do anything that's going to reduce. Say you've got your, your soup. You've simmered. The meat is tender. You've done your reduction. This is where you add your finishing. 
So if you were going to do a soup and you wanted it to be like a cream soup, you're going to add some heavy cream to it, which is beautiful, right? Now, after it's done almost, we're going to maybe we reduce it a little bit more, concentrate that cream, but we're going to do it now. We're not going to put cream in at the beginning. If we want to do some fresh herbs, maybe we're going to do some uh, parsley and cilantro and fresh thyme, not our dried thyme. It's more our, 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 our base herb that's carrying through. We want to do that right at the end. If we want to do something like arugula in a soup and create a bite contrast with that nuttiness of the arugula, you cook arugula through that soup the whole time. It's not, it's, there's nothing left of it. Or spinach, less flavor than the arugula, same thing. We're going to hit that right at the end. In fact, a lot of fresh herbs would be really good, at, like I said, with the steak or the leftover meat. Put the herbs in a bowl and later the soup over it. Let just the heat of the broth simmer into them. And then a little bit of fresh on top. Uh, green onion would be another thing. I would add green onion at the end, or I would do it as an, as a, as an add-on, a, a accoutrement when you serve, even just to yourself. Now, here's the thing about doing this. This is easier than it sounds. I can make soup without even thinking, and I can do it with anything. But it's it actually is all the other skills put together. You've learned knife skills. You've learned how to sear meat. You'd love how to make a vegetable base, and maybe some of that meat's coming from a sear and finish in the oven. And now you have these leftovers, and this is what happens. Back when Dorothy still had a, a W-2 job, she would take food into her office. She was a nurse, and she would be eating this food that was leftovers that I had prepared for her. And the other people she worked for would say, wow, that's really great food, man. Jack must be doing really good. Must be nice, shit like that. And she'd sit there and look at the crap they're eating. They were going down to the hospital cafeteria, and they were eating something that was no better than going to McDonald's. There was more money in that cheeseburger and fries or whatever the hell they were eating. They were spending more money to eat that garbage. And these were nurses working in a hospital telling people to keep their health up. Then she had into these leftovers that we made. And this sounds complicated. It's not. None of this is complicated. None of this is hard. And so what I encourage you to do in your walk as, as a cook for yourself is, number one, when you watch TV and you're watching these guys that are they're great chefs, there's a lot of bullshit in there. Gordon Ramsay's a nice dude, man. He is not the guy flipping out on BBC or a Jamie Oliver or uh, any of these guys, uh, Guy Fieri, uh, Bobby Flay, whatever. You see these people cooking, the competition cook. If you watch that stuff, and I do, I, I really enjoy it. I know there's BS in it, but I, I still like Don't watch what they're doing. Watch how they do it. Watch how they do it. The technique is what you focus on. And there's a hundred other things I can tell you about. And we're going to do, like I said, kind of a loose series going through the rest of this year on different types of cooking. We'll do one on sous vide. We'll do one on Dutch oven. We'll do one on griddle. So there's at least three right there. And people say, well, you left this out. I'm like, of course I did. I'm 50 years old tomorrow, right? I, this is stuff I've learned. I, I started cooking like this when I was in like sixth grade, fifth grade. I'd go out and I'd get game or fish or something. And I wanted to cook it. And my parents didn't want to do it. My dad was a workaholic. My mom didn't know how to do it. She was a terrible cook. I wanted to eat this stuff. My grandparents, you know, they, my one grandparent was Italian. She was really good at making pastas and stuff like that, but not really anything else. My other grandmother, like if it was meat, she she cooked it till it was dead. Like she boiled it. Like she was old school, first generation Ukrainian. She was afraid we were going to get sick if you didn't cook meat all the way through. She took porterhouses 
and put them in a cast iron skillet with an inch of water and boiled them till the water was gone. Then threw a knob of butter and then browned the outside of it. It didn't taste bad, but it didn't taste like a porterhouse. So I had to learn this. So I learned by watching chefs cook on like PBS. That was the only cooking channels at the time. There were four stations, NBC, ABC, CBS, and PBS. That was it. So like watching like the Cajun chef, Justin Trudeau or Paul Prudhomme, right? The, 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 what was her name? Uh, I can't think of her name now. She's the most famous female cook, uh, Julia Child, stuff like that. And I was always more interested in what they were doing as far as the, the how. And, and learn, like, just take one of these this week. If you've never really made a great steak in a frying pan, if you think you need your grill to make a steak, just learn to get that seasoning, to give it time in the refrigerator overnight with the salt on it, to give it seasoning the day of, let it come up to temperature, get that pan right, get that sear. If it's a thinner steak, just cook it to your preferred temperature. Don't even worry about finishing the oven. And then when you're done with that steak, while it's resting, take that, go to the side, deglaze that pan, throw some veg in it. Just some random mixed vegetables. Cauliflower rice would be another great thing. Deglaze the pan, throw, throw, uh, uh, we buy cauliflower rice. They come in four one pound pouches. It's like eight bucks organic at Costco. Take one of those pouches, defrost that because it's really dense when it's frozen into a chunk. Throw it in there. Throw half a stick of butter in there with it. Right. Mix in all of that beautiful juice. Use a little bit of uh, stock to deglaze all that meat flavor that's in there. Hit it with some thyme and rosemary. Serve that. Just that's it. Steak and that cauliflower recipe. It'll blow you away. And it's keto. It's keto carnivore. And all that flavor carries in to whatever that vegetable is. It could be carrots. It could be carrots and green beans. It could be broccoli. And carrots. It could be broccoli and greens. It could be whatever you want it to be. It could be a green, spinach, arugula. Like babies, get, get a package of organic baby spinach and arugula. Five bucks for a great big thing of it at the grocery store. If you don't, if you don't have any, like I don't have any this year, time of year, it's too hot out to grow it. Cook that steak. Throw that in there. Steak and greens. See, there's, if I tell you to do the, 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 the cauliflower rice thing, you'd be like, well, when I finally get to Costco and get the, if you have it, use it. If you don't do something else with it, just understand every time you make that beautiful steak in something like a frying pan, what's in that pan is for the side. It's waiting there, and it's going to complement the flavors of the meat because it has the flavors that were with the meat and you did it. None of this is hard. It just takes time. So pick and choose as we go through this series. Learn to do one thing really well, then learn to do another thing really well, and then learn to do another thing really well. And what does that sound like? Does it sound like how I teach gardening? You know, don't worry about starting your own plants and making your own compost. Like first year, put in a garden, figure out how to get your soil in the best condition you can. Buy good organic amendments like Dr. Earth for your for your fertility. Buy plants that are already started and plant the seeds that are easy to plant. Learn to garden, skill set. Next season, pick the easiest seeds to do your own starting with. Learn to start those and make some compost in the fall. Another skill set. And, you know, two, three seasons into it, you've become a master gardener by not trying to do everything at once. Cooking's the same way. But the beauty is you learn what I gave you today. Everything else that I'm going to give you from here on out is going to be a cakewalk. Let's see if we don't have a lot of stuff that I start. I was uh, a little distracted today, but I want to try to answer a few things. 85 Jim 19 says, butter runs to the edge, but eggs stay put. Just got from Amazon. I, I wouldn't worry about it. So he's talking about his domed pan again. To me, domed is like domed. Right. 
you're not going to have for, you know, 30, 40 bucks, whatever a, 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 a skillet costs, like a perfectly leveled, pristine, like surface, like you would, you know, run it science experiments on, like you'd run your 3D printer on it. Don't, don't worry about it. You know, and, and part of it may be that is your stove level. This is another reason I don't like electric stoves with the coils because they're never level. No matter what you do, you can never, like this one's never level to that one. Um, I'm not a huge fan of glass top stoves, but I like them better if I have, I'm stuck with electric than, than a coil because at least the surface can be freaking level. Uh, but I, I wouldn't worry about it too much. It's, it's a pan. Like you, you're not looking for perfection. You're looking for good. Now, if you have a big imperfection, and any piece of Lodge's cookware, they will replace it for you. I promise you that. They'll do it because I know they've done it. Um, Fireproof Fox says, what would be your opinion on an oak end grain cutting board? I know it's large pores, but it's so is bamboo, right? Yeah, I don't have I don't have any real strong feelings about any cutting board as long as it's end grain. And I don't hate long grain cutting boards. They're just not my workhorse. So if I, I have some... You know, kind of long grain cutting boards. That means it's a long dimension. You know, if I'm slicing up some cheese and hard meats and something and we're going to have like a charcuterie board, they're fine for that. If the board's over here and it's got meat on it and we need to dice up one onion, I don't care. But the workhorse boards, hardwood and bamboo both, I want them to be end grain. I don't, I don't get real finicky about that. Some people are really worried about like food contamination. If you clean your boards between uses, and you do it with just a mild detergent and you make sure you clean them and dry them. You are, I've been doing this my whole life. All the things people worry about causing cross contamination and, and what have you, I would be dead. I would have had food poison on top of food poison. I would be dead if I over worried about it. Now there are some things that I didn't cover today. And here's, here's one thing you should think about. If you're putting raw chicken on a grill or in a skillet and you're using tongs. Okay. And you use the tongs to put it into the skillet. You have raw chicken goo on those tongs. And even though you fully cooked that chicken, you're doing your last turning and you're pulling off with the same tongs you put the raw chicken on with. You're, you're touching the chicken. You're about to eat the surface of it with raw chicken goo. Now, some people literally use two sets of tongs. I don't do that. I turn the hot water on in the, in the sink and I rinse the tongs off really good, give them a bang and it dry off and I go back to using them. Once I've got the outside searing done. That's like, that's like the most extreme thing I do to prevent food poisoning, cross contamination and things. Like, and I think that, and that was one I got away with for a long time because I never thought about it. I never thought about that. And I saw, I think it was Bobby Flay explained that one. I'm like, Oh shit, he's right about that. So I, I, you know, I, I like made that part of what I do. And K-Bonk says, induction tip, uh, best sear start with meat in a cold pan. I will defer to K-Bonk on that. I have never cooked with an induction cooktop. So he's basically saying take the cold pan, put the meat in it, turn the temperature on. And I guess because induction tops are like precision, kind of like surface temperature sous vide, um, you get to exact temperature and they bring the pan up to match the temperature. Maybe that works. I don't know. I've never... I've never tried that, so I'll I'll defer and say that if that's you, then maybe that's what you want to do. SOMO two SS says, any idea how to combat a stove that burns too hot, even on low? The stove gets the pan so hot, my soups boil. Uh, let me know if that's is that a gas stove or an electric stove? 
Because one of the big things that you can do is use a different burner. I mean, sometimes it's that simple. And use a pan appropriate to the burner. That was someone's going to talk about with cookware today that really didn't. But, you know, if you have a great big pan and you're using one of your secondary burners and it's a much smaller burner, you're only hitting heating the center of that pan, then you have cold on the outside. So you want to kind of try to use pans that sort of at least line up with either your your flame ring or your the size of your burner. Um but I'm not sure. So let me know. Is that is that electric or is that gas? Because if it's electric, I don't know what you can really do about that. If it's gas, one of the things you always need to check with your gas range tops is they usually come configured to run a natural gas. And then each burner has a little orifice that the gas actually comes out of. And if you're going to run your gas range on propane, it's a different size orifice to get the same burn. So sometimes what will happen is you'll have the wrong gas to the wrong, especially if it's like a used range top. So you may need to contact the manufacturer and make sure you're running the proper orifices if you are doing a gas stove top and you're having that problem. And I'm not sure which way it would cause the problem. Um, but like when we got our, we got a beautiful stove recently. It was like my dream stove. And I required that the people I bought it from configure it for me when they installed it. I didn't want to have to mesh with it after that. Rabbit cooking tips. Do what I said today. <laughs> no, seriously, like, so rabbit, one of the things about rabbit is rabbit in a way is a lot like chicken. I don't mean the taste, right? So, like, you have different pieces and different sizes, and you can cook a whole rabbit, but you're going to find you're much better off breaking a rabbit down to the two back leg quarters to two front leg quarters, taking, like, the ribs off and using that to make something like a stock, and then using the saddle, which would be the chops and, like, a, like the loin, and using those as separate cooking things. Um, my favorite way to do rabbit is actually my favorite way to do squirrel. And you don't, just break it down. Get your grill screaming hot. Use a seasoning of your choice, salt, pepper, what have you. Freaking basic steak seasoning is great for this. Get your grill screaming hot. As hot as you can without breaking some. And sear all that meat on all sides. Put it into a foil pouch. Drizzle it, with, especially with like an infused olive oil, like a, uh, a green pepper, like, like, those, uh, like the... Uh, the green chilies, like green, like a hatch green chili infused olive oil, just give it a drizzle of that and then seal that foil pouch up really, really tight and go indirect heat. So bring your heat down and go not over the heat, off to the side of the heat, close the grill, and let it just sit in there for about 30 minutes. Squirrel, rabbit, it'll it'll blow you away. That would be one way. But that's, see, that's a technique. Can you do that with chicken? Of course you can. And, you know, white meat chicken won't be quite as good as dark meat chicken if you do that. Like, you can do... Chicken thighs, skin on chicken thighs, the way I just said to do that, blow you away. You want to take it another level, take your knife, go in the, the big piece side of the chicken thigh, down to the bone, but don't debone the whole thing. Thin slice some jalapenos, put them inside there, and then cook the exact same way with the jalapeno and jalapeno and garlic infused from the inside. How did I come up with that? It's just like, hey, you know what? Chicken and jalapeno and garlic, that sounds good. Be fearless. Be, be fearless. And, and uh, the gentleman asking about the cooking too hot said the gas happens on all burners. And uh, and he's in the name of the stove, which is some French name I can't say right. Uh, I'm not sure. One of the things you could try is maybe uh, using a diffuser. Look, look for a diffuser, a heat diffuser. Uh, that will actually diffuse the heat some, or 
using some sort of a rack to bring your your pot a little higher above the flame would be uh, what you could do. And experiment. He said it happens with all burners. So I've I've never had that problem. Um, part of it is you know it sounds like it's a good stove though, so I'm not sure. But I would definitely make sure like if you're on nat gas and you got the stove directly from a store, then I I can't see there's a problem. If you're on propane. And you didn't specifically have it reconfigured because they usually come configured for nat gas. That could be the problem. Danielle Roundabout says, question, what is the name of the bush that tastes like broccoli? I don't remember. I'm not sure if you got that from me or not to begin with, but I don't remember. And I think we'll wrap up on that. Um, yeah, we got somebody here, uh, not Richmond, just Frank. Uh, he says he would scoot the pan or pot half on the burner if the pan or pot will sit halfway on two eyes, then you can turn both uh, on low and have a little more control. That would be a that would be a good suggestion. I would also say that most stoves that have the great big long oval burner in the center, like for griddles and stuff, they never really seem to get hot enough to do a good job uh, of like grilling on like a, a long griddle or something like that. But they really work really good as simmer burners. So if you have one of those, you may try using that. And and as he said, like. There is something, there's times when I want my pan a little bit cooler or I want maybe one side a little hotter and kind of shifting. Uh, but when you're doing soups and sauces, it's, it's still tough because now you're really hitting one side of it with a lot of heat. So it seems I, I would have that stove checked, especially if you're on propane. If you're on propane and you're running that gas orifices, I know that can cause a problem. I just don't know if it would go the direction of the problem you're having. Anyway, with that, I have wrapped things up. I want to remind you guys that tomorrow I am going to have a Bitcoin breakout episode. It will be on the TSP channel because I don't think it's fair to the guys that I've got to commit to come on to that. But if you don't usually turn in, tune in for the Bitcoin stuff, please do. We're going to talk about the Layer 3 revolution. I've got Guy Swan and Brian Harrington, both who have been on the show before, coming on. We're going to talk about how when you look at your cell phone right now, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. Look at your cell phone right now. Seriously, pick it up and look at it. Open it up and look at the screen and see all those apps. In a few years, any of those apps that are not monetized in some way, that don't have value for value some way, will either be gone and replaced or they will have adapted. We're going to monetize everything. We're going to monetize your weather app because it will make it work better. They're going to monetize your traffic app because it's going to make it work better. Those of you using Fountain, you already are probably starting to get this, right? If on ways you get the like, people rap the cops out, they're running a speed trap here. If you could reward the guy that told you that a dollar, would you? What if a thousand people did it? Like I just made a grand by ratting out the cops. We demonetize the state. Now think about every app. I want you to look at every app and say, how would I monetize this? With micropayments, whether it be from the consumer to the producer or from one user to another. And then I want you to realize something. You can't do it with dollars. You're not going to do micropayments with dollars and legacy payment systems. It's not going to happen. And all of the, all of the belief that some other crypto someday will, you know, make this possible, it's done. It's already happening with Bitcoin and Lightning. Right now, there, somebody boosted me two sats. Go look up what that's a fraction of a cent. And it was doable in seconds with final settlement. So the world is changing. The world is changing, guys. And it's changing with you or without you, some of you holdouts. 
And the ability for the network effect to take over in the next couple of years is going to become evident. And there's two types of network effects. We'll be talking about that tomorrow. Again, with Brian Harrington and Guy Swan, two of the most switched on people in the space that there are. And I'll be back tomorrow with that. And we have a great interview set up on Wednesday as well. It will have nothing to do with Bitcoin. We'll have our expert council Q&A Thursday. And Friday, I haven't decided yet. But I'm really thinking after my conversation with Ken Berry last Friday about taking another run at how awesome quail are as a homestead livestock animal, especially for those of you on smaller properties, because it really does provide a lot of solutions. I did a lot on them in the past, and uh, I stopped keeping them because my wife won't eat them, and I don't really want to do all the work for one thing, and we have plenty of meat here. So, But, man, if I were in... If I were living on the property, when I started the show, I lived on a third of an acre in Arlington. If I was living on a property like that right now, you can bet I would be doing quail. So I think maybe we'll go over that again because what a great, great production system. A production system for meat, eggs, and compost. As regenerative it gets if you do it right. So I'll think about it. You let me know if you want to hear about that. And with that, you guys have a great day. So I hope you enjoyed that one. Again, uh, this is going to be a series, but it's not going to be like a series in rapid fire order. We'll probably do one of these every two to three weeks through the rest of the year. I got a lot of stuff I want to talk about with you. Somebody already asked today during this series if I would do something on keto carnivore cooking with a Dutch oven. I will, but I just want you to think about what we talked about today with technique. You can probably come up with it yourself, right? Like it's basically slow cooking, maybe doing a good sear. On some meat, maybe something like an osobusco, or like if you are a deer hunter, like all those shanks that everybody throws away or just makes into ground meat. You take those shanks, and you, you see what I'm saying? Some, I'm going to do a little bit of onion and garlic, and we caramelize those. And what I talked to you today about vegetable, and then we put that in there, and then we fill that Dutch oven until, you see? And we do a braise. I didn't talk about braising today, but that will be a skill that I've been coming. Like, if you focus on this technique, you realize I don't need a recipe. I just need to master the techniques, and we will definitely go into the techniques of Dutch oven cooking. And then if you want potatoes, you do potatoes. And if you want keto carnivore, you do something like, dare I say it, radishes? I I shit you not. You take those, and I'm not a big fan of like cherry bell radishes, but you take those little radishes and you stew them, and they completely change. They're somewhere between a potato and a turnip. This is why you tune in. And what else can we do in there? Maybe little shiitake mushrooms. Yeah? All right. With that, let's go ahead and wrap things up. Hope you enjoyed today's show. Remember, tomorrow I am going to have Guy Swan and Brian Harrington and myself on. There might be a disturbance in the force. Yes, it's going to be Bitcoin. I am going to put it out on the TSP YouTube channel as well as the Bitcoin Breakout YouTube channel. I don't think it's fair to those two guys to come on to my new channel that has less than a 1,000 subs. But it would mean so much to me. It really would. Those of you that, that care about the crypto content, please subscribe to the Bitcoin Breakout YouTube channel. I'm so close to crossing that 1,000 sub barrier, and then I'll be able to monetize that channel and what have you. I really want to build that channel up. I want to be exclusive on that side, but it's hard to give up a channel with almost 60,000 subs because a lot of you guys last week when I was on the Bitcoin Breakout channel only were like, oh, you're, you kicked off YouTube again? Uh, no, guys, please. Come on over, check it out. Tomorrow, I'm going to make you a believer. Tomorrow, we are going to make you a believer, all three of us. I'm going to explain to you why it will not be long that when you look at your screen on your phone and you see all those apps that you use every day, 
they will all be monetized or they will be replaced. And there's only one way to do it. Tune in tomorrow to learn about Layer 3 and how it's going to affect your life going forward because that, just like cooking as a life skill, is a prepper skill. And tomorrow I'll catch you. Hopefully, you'll give Bitcoin a chance. With that, has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. You pull yourself up, they keep bringing you down. Are they going to bail you out or just run you around? They said you should have a house the American way. Dollar down, a dollar a month, and you never have to pay. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.